This morning we're in Luke 21, and before I get started, I wanted to, to talk about the ending of Luke 20. The ending of Luke 20 is, is talking about the scribes, and, uh, and it says, beware of the scribes, and that they devour widows' houses, and, and for a pretense they make long prayers, and Jesus goes on to say, these will receive greater condemnation. So that chapter closes with the scribes, you know, basically when, when the widow would become a widow, the scribes would come in and they would take over and all the property and pretty much leave her with, with nothing. And then they make these prayers kind of to show off in front of people, right on? And it says, Jesus says that these will receive greater condemnation. Chapter 21 of Luke opens with the widow's offering. And I think those two kind of fit together because Jesus just warned that there's a greater condemnation for those that are basically ripping off the widows or anybody else for that matter and, and then putting on the show of, of prayers. So let's, uh, let, me, let me open with, uh, with this. So Jesus is watching the rich people putting their gifts into the treasury of the temple and, and there was this contrast between the rich and a certain poor widow. And the rich people gave, and there's nothing wrong with being rich, by the way, but we're going to see this in here. Um, they gave some, but she gave all. And, and what, they, what they gave was little cost, um, little or nothing. And, and she gave all the livelihood that she had. Uh, the gold of affluence and, and, and the things of abundance that are given, um, because if they're not needed, God just tosses that to the, to the pit. But the copper, the copper that was gotten with blood and with sweat and with tears, God lifts that and blesses it uh, into gold of eternity. So Luke 21.1, and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. And he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For, out of, for all these out of their abundance have put in their offerings to God. But out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Uh, if, we, if I could have the picture of the, of the mite up on the screen. There it is. So last time or the time before, I can't remember, when I went to Israel, I wanted to bring home a significant gift for my kids. Something that would mean something and, and be cool, so... That's a picture that one of my daughters sent me of a widow's mite that I got for her in Israel. I have two, two younger daughters, and each one of them got a widow's mite. And it reminded me of them and this story because I remember when they were little, like, you know, three, four feet high. Well, not four. They're four feet high now. <laughs> they were little, okay? I can't remember the age. Six, seven years old, and they would come to church with their piggy bank, and they'd want to dump the whole thing in there. And they were all in, man. I mean, it wasn't like, well, I'm just going to take a dollar and bring it to church. They were all in. It didn't matter if there was 33 cents in there or if there was 20 bucks in there. They didn't care. They were going to put the whole thing in. And I thought that's, that's the heart of the giver that God likes and, and looks for. And, and so I thought, what could be more fitting than getting these kids a widow's mite? So the jewelry stores sell antiquities and coins. It actually comes with a certificate of authenticity from the Jewish or from the Israeli government. And uh, so I thought, how cool is that? And they were affordable, too. You know, it wasn't like I had to break the bank to get them. So there it is, the widow's mite um, from the time of Jesus, authentic, authenticated by the Israeli government. And you can get one there, too, if you go. 
And if you drop Dwight's name, 60 bucks. If you don't drop Dwight's name, you're going to pay a lot more. So, believe me. <laughs> so, the value of a mite, it can be determined like this a denarii is a day's wage, and two mites is 1% of a denarii, so two mites would be 1% of a day's wage. That's all she had. And she gave two of them, not just one. So I'm thinking about this, that, you know, she might have just kept one coin for herself. And, and who would really blame her if she did? I mean, I, I feel like that would be a pretty good deal. I'll give, Lord, I'll give you half of what I have. But in giving two mites, we see that she was all in. She was going to give everything that she had. And I think that this is a picture of the Lord wanting us to be all in. He wants us to be all in in following him. You know, that is a huge sacrifice that we can give to him that doesn't, is you know, something we can do. And, and, and like, the, like the widow, with, with much or with little, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of the heart and how all in we are. So I wanted to mention, too, that the mina and the talent are also two, um, two words for, like, monetary values. But they're really terms used in the New Testament that refer to weights of silver, rather than coins. So it was a certain weight versus a, a stamped coin. Uh, in, in the next verses, we're going to see Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple. And, and one thing I might back up for just a moment here is that the story about the widow's might and um, saying that she had put in all, I think that he had just told us to be aware of the scribes that they're going to receive greater condemnation because of them ripping off the widows, right? And here they're showing this widow going all in. And we can see the religious leaders of the day weren't all in, were they? They were all in for themselves. And this widow was all in for God. So there's a a really great picture there. And I think that this whole chapter kind of talks about how all in are we? And are we going to uh, follow what Jesus tells us And we're going to see some of that later on. So in verses 5 through 33, it shows us this this great prophetic discourse. And and though it resembles the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, it's not identical. But once again, we should remind ourselves that the differences in the Gospels have deep significance. And in this discourse, we find the Lord speaking uh, of the destruction of Israel in AD 70. And then of the conditions that will uh, come before a second coming. And this is an illustration of the law of double reference, some fancy, some fancy terminology there. Um, the outline kind of goes like this. Jesus foretold the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 5 and 6. Uh, he'll give a general picture of uh, uh, the disciples ask what will happen in verse 7. Jesus gives us a general picture of, uh, of events coming before the second coming. Or they, they say the second advent, right? And uh, I like to say the second coming. It's a lot easier for me to understand. And then he gives a picture of the fall of Jerusalem and the age that would follow in verses 12 through 24. And then finally he tells us signs that would precede his second coming. And he urges his followers to live in the expectation of his return. Once again, being all in. And uh, verse 5, then as some spoke of the temple... How it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see the days will come in which 
Not one stone shall be left upon another, and that shall not be thrown down. And as some of the people were admiring the magnificence of Herod's temple, Jesus warns them not to be preoccupied with these material things that would soon pass away. And the days were coming when the temple would be completely leveled. So this temple was originally built by Zerubbabel and Ezra, and we can find that. We, won't, we don't have to go there, but if you're a note-taker, Ezra 6, verse 15. And then it was greatly expanded, and it was improved by King Herod. And it was actually it was the center of Jewish life at the time. And uh, for, for quite a few years, I think almost a thousand, and, and it was customary to swear by the temple. It was that great of a thing. And, and speaking against the temple would be blasphemy. And, and what happens, Jesus says that there's not going to be one stone upon the other. It had to be freaking these people out, right? Because something that had always been there, always been solid, beautiful, magnificent, is going to be torn down. And after Herod, the temple was huge, nearly 500 yards long, 400 yards wide. Herod's rebuilding work started in 19 B.C., and was only completed in 63 AD. So it was going on for some time. And uh, it took probably slightly more than 80 years to build that temple. And it was finished only seven years before it was destroyed. And the temple wasn't just big, it was beautiful. The, The Jewish historian Josephus says that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates. And that they were so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it was blinding to look at. And where there was no gold, there was blocks of marble of such a pure white that strangers from far off would would think that it was snow on the temple. Um, It had to have been magnificent. And it was said that at the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews in the city fled to the temple because it was the strongest, most secure building in the city. And the Roman soldiers surrounded it, and one soldier started a fire, and soon it engulfed the whole building. And ornate gold detail work in the roof melted down into the cracks between the stone walls of the temple. And to retrieve the gold, the Roman commander ordered that the temple be dismantled stone by stone. And the destruction was so complete that today they have true difficulty finding out exactly where the temple was. So they asked him in verse 7, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? These guys had to be having a hard time wrapping their minds around the destruction of the temple. Eighty years, you know, it was, it was many years before them, many years in, in the making, and, and now there's, Jesus is saying it's going to be destroyed. And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? They wanted to know. And the disciples, they're, they're curious. And in verse 8, Jesus said, Take heed that you not be deceived. And you know that Jesus tells us many times, do not be deceived. How can we not be deceived? By getting into God's word, to, to knowing God's word, and having it in our heart. And then when we hear something that doesn't sound right, we measure it by God's word. It's the one true standard that we could always measure by and and know that it's right. So take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. 
But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must, be, must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Are we going to be terrified? Are we going to have a propensity to be terrified? I say yes, because Jesus said, do not be terrified. So the emotion is going to be on the brink of being there, right? And some of the most peaceful, calm people I've ever met in my life are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because he gives us that peace. But imagine without that, being terrified would be a pretty easy thing to happen, right? I think that if five years ago we knew about the COVID and all the things that they're hyping about it, we would be, there would be people that would be terrified. And then there would be those that rest in the Lord. So verse 9 says, uh, when you hear these things, yeah, do, do not be terrified. Uh, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. In verse 10, Jesus is going to talk about uh, wars and, and persecution. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So Jesus' answer first seems to take them ahead to the end of the age. When the temple would be destroyed prior to setting up the kingdom. And there would be false messiahs and false rumors wars and uprisings, and there would be not only conflict among the nations, but great catastrophes of nature and earthquakes, famines, pestilences, terrors, great signs from heaven. And he says, do not be terrified. And all of these things preceded the destruction of Israel. Were there wars before the destruction of Israel in 70 AD? Yes. The Romans were frequently at war with the Jews, the Samaritans, the Syrians, uh, historians tell us of great earthquakes in the Roman Empire before Jerusalem was destroyed. Were there famines? Acts uh, 11.28 tells us that in this period there, wa there was uh, fearful sights. Uh, Pompeii blew up just seven years before Jerusalem was destroyed. Was there signs in the heavens? Not long before Jerusalem was destroyed, a comet that looked like a sword hung over the city by night for a year. That would freak you out, wouldn't it? Especially after seeing some of the weird movies that Hollywood puts out where there's stuff, you know, flying out there that we don't really want to see. Uh, people get freaked out on that stuff. Yet Jesus also speaks of general conditions that will uh, come before a second coming. And the world has seen incredible catastrophe since the time of Jesus. Even, even in our country, we've seen genocide on it. On, uh, uh, in, our, in our time and, and in, in other countries close by, the genocide on, on these scales that were huge, worldwide war our own country has seen, and whole continents given over to, to disease and famine, uh, the COVID-19 thing and, and more. These things in themselves are not the signs of Jesus' coming, though, but they are signs. In verse 12, Jesus says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Are we seeing that? Absolutely. Man, I'm praying for, I'm hearing about pastors all over the place that are getting persecuted, Christians getting killed. And I believe there's a pastor in California that is in, in jail right now for having services. And they'll have their, their hands on you, delivering you up to um, the synagogues and 
You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. You know, uh, think about when, when these guys, uh, when the disciples and stuff would get put in jail, Paul would get in jail, right? And what would he do? Guys in jail are getting saved. Here it is, you'll, you'll turn out as an occasion for testimony. A lot of times when bad stuff happens to us, it gives us an opportunity to help somebody else who's in the same situation that maybe doesn't know the Lord. An occasion for testimony. And therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. That that happens to me sometimes. And it probably happens to you too where you get put on the spot, maybe asked to say a few words at something and uh, you have no clue what you're going to say but you just go up there in faith and the Lord gives you the words and after you're done... People seem to like it, you know. You didn't hear any guns cocking or anything like that. And, um, you don't even remember what you said. <laughs> Say, like, hey, did anybody record that so I could, you know, have that for later. I'll make some notes. But you know it was the Lord. You know it was the Holy Spirit that got you through it. And, and it just, Jesus goes to tell us that in verse 15. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. But how do we have that wisdom except for knowing God's word? And having that hid away in our hearts for another time. So Jesus tells us about these events uh, immediately before the end of the age. And verse 12 is uh, introduced by the expression before all these things. So we believe that verses 12 through 24 describe the period between the time of the discourse and the future tribulation period. And Jesus' disciples would be arrested, persecuted, tried before religious and civil powers and imprisoned, and it might seem like failure and tragedy to the, to the hearer. But actually, the Lord would overrule it and make it a testimony for his glory. And they were not to prepare their defense in advance. In the crisis hour, God would give them special wisdom to say the things that would completely confound and blow away their, their adversaries' minds. And there's quite a few pastors facing these legal problems right now doing due to having the services uh, when they're not supposed to or, or the mask, no mask issue. But our faith, our faith, gathering together and, and praising the Lord and hearing God's word, that is an essential institution. I don't know about you guys, but this is essential for life for me. And I think it's probably essential for life for you as well. In verse 16, you'll be, to, you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated uh, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head shall be lost. So there would be treachery amongst families. Unsaved relatives would betray Christians, and, and some would even be killed because of their stand for Christ. There is... Um, there's sort of a contradiction, it seems, between they will, they will put some of you to death, but not a hair on your head would be lost. But it could only mean that some would die as martyrs for Christ, and their spiritual preservation would be complete. And they would die, but they would not perish. Verse 19 says, by your patience, possess your souls. Now, that's one that I had to chew on a little bit. By, your, by my patience, possess your souls. But I think it indicates that People who will endure for Christ 
rather than renouncing him, will, will prove the reality of their faith. And those who are generally saved will stand true and loyal at any cost. And then I, I stop as I'm thinking about that, and well, Peter said that he would never deny Christ, and Peter was a pretty rough, tough dude, you know? The Revised Standard Version of the Bible says, by your endurance, you'll gain your lives. Uh, keeping your hand to the plow and, and staying in the right direction. Now, Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he brings the subject up of the destruction in 70 A.D., and, and how they would know that this is going to happen is they'd be surra- surrounded by the Roman armies. So the Christian of, of, of an early day, the, the year 70 A.D., had um, certain signs to introduce the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the tearing down of the beautiful temple. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. So this is to be a, a, a sign of the destruction of Jerusalem, and it was a sign that they're supposed to flee. So when these guys were, were getting out of town, um, they, were, they were all in on getting out. I mean, you had to grab what you could and get out. I'm thinking about them like, what would I grab, you know? I think there's at least one guitar I got to have with me, you know? And I take the Harley, but I can't fit the family on it. You know, maybe, maybe Trish will drive. You know, but these guys had to get out, and, and, and here's the thing is that an attempt to re-enter the city would be fatal, wouldn't it? Because it's surrounded by, by these soldiers, and the city was about to be punished for its rejection of, of the Son of God. Pregnant women and nursing mothers would be at a distinct, distinct disadvantage, and they would be hindered in escaping from the judgment of God on the land of Israel and the Jewish people, and many would be slain. Survivors would be carried off as captives in other lands. How, how bad would that be, to be hauled off as a captive? I mean, I already have to do a lot of stuff I don't want to do as a free man. Imagine being a, cap, a captive. And the latter part of verse 24 is this prophecy that the ancient city of Jerusalem would be subject to Gentile rule. And from, uh, from that time until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that doesn't mean that the Jews might not control it for brief periods, but the thought is that it would be continually subject to Gentile invasion and interference until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Um, I'll talk about that more in, in just a minute. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. I mean, I think that's, that's a pretty easy one, right? If somebody surrounded, you know, a building with an army you know that it's, it's not going to be good. Um, but he goes on to say, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. So he's saying, get out of town. And if you're in the country, don't go in. So the Christians in Jerusalem knew what Jesus had said and they obeyed him. Uh, fleeing across the Jordan River, no Christians perished in the fall of Jerusalem. Why? They listened to Jesus. They got out of town. Verse 22, For these days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon its people. 
And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Those are Jesus' words. So the New Testament distinguishes between riches of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles and the times of the Gentiles. So the riches of the Gentiles, according to Romans 11, verse 12, refers to the place of privilege in which the Gentiles enjoy uh, at the present time. And while Israel is temporarily set aside by God, the fullness of the Gentiles, this is the one that, that I really am into, uh, is the time of the rapture, when Christ's Gentile bride will be completed and taken down from earth, or taken from earth, I should say, and when God will resume his dealings with Israel. Um, Dwight has is, is described it as, as, you know, when God knows when the last person is going to accept Christ, the last Gentile. We don't know. And, and if it's you today, come on, get on the bandwagon here so we can go home because there's something better waiting for us, you know. Otherwise, we're just occupying until he comes and, and trying to let people know who Jesus is and his, his great love for us. Um, that is the fullness of the Gentiles, and, and I'm waiting for that. The times of the Gentiles really began with Babylonian captivity in 521 B.C., and, and it's going to extend to the time when Gentile nations will no longer have control over the city of Jerusalem. Now, down through the centuries, from the time of Jesus' words, Jerusalem has mostly been controlled by Gentile powers. Remember, during the time of Jesus, who, who were the rulers? The Romans. And the Romans you know, were heavy-handed with, with the, the nation of Israel and, and the Jewish people. So check this out. The emperor, Julian Apostate, sought to discredit Christianity by disproving this prophecy of the Lord. So he had encouraged the Jews to rebuild the temple, and when they went to work eagerly using silver shovels uh, in their extravagance and carrying dirt and purple veils, can you imagine that? It was like the designer construction scene, right? You know, we don't need yellow helmets. We need silver shovels and purple veils to haul dirt around. <laughs> For those of you that do construction, it's a pretty, pretty funny scene, huh? And while they were working, this is the cool part. This, you know, watch what God does, right? They were interrupted by an earthquake. And, and get this, balls of fire coming from the ground. They had to abandon the project. Isn't that just like God? It's like you're going to do something that you think you can uh, stop a prophecy, man. Watch this. You're going to see balls of fire coming out of the ground. Who would think that? I mean, from the sky, yeah, probably, but out of the ground? I mean, uh, we know they didn't hit a gas line because they didn't have those back then. And, and I wanted to talk about the East Gate. You know, the prophecy is that Jesus is going to come back on the Mount of Olives and then walk through the Valley of Kidron and walk in through the East Gate. Well, the East Gate right now is sealed up. Um, and my mind, I didn't write down who sealed it up, and it's in the back of my mind, so I'm not going to go there. But it's sealed up, and it's in addition to that, it's like 30 feet below the ground right now because in Israel they just build on top of things. So with, with that happening, um, the, the Muslims also have graves from from the uh, Mount of Olives all the way through the Kidron Valley right up to the, to the wall. And no proper Jewish man can pass through graves that would be unclean. Well, then uh, we all know about, maybe not all of us, but 
there's seismic activity going on, and, and the greatest amount of seismic activity is in that Kidron Valley area. So in my mind, and, and I really shouldn't go there because I think, I'll bet you this is what God's going to do, right, in my mind. Probably way off, but it, it, would it, it wouldn't be impossible for God to have a really awesome earthquake and all those graves get down into the ground and gone, and all of a sudden that gate is exposed and opened, right? I mean, that's in my mind how it probably could happen. Um, and, you know, it's just it's speculation on my part, but God could do that. And uh, so no matter what man tries to do, like by putting graves so Jesus won't walk through, sealing up the gate and all that, yeah, God's got it handled. You know, we can't go through there right now. We can walk through the gate, graves and stuff. And I've actually walked through there. It's, it's amazing. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very neat part of the world to be in. So in, uh, in 1968, the Israelis took possession of Jerusalem. And the Holy Mount is still uh, Arab property. If you want to go see the Temple Mount, you have to go through Arab security and have to go through. If you have shorts on, they make you buy something to cover your legs. If you're a girl and you have a tank top on, guess what? you got to cover up. And uh, when I was there, one of the gals had uh, like her sleeves showing or something, and the, the men, the, the Arab men that were there were yelling, show some respect, you know, cover up. And they weren't very nice about it either. Um, but that just goes to show you that it's, it's that the Temple Mount of being under Arab rule, as far as uh, God is concerned, this is the most important piece of real estate in the world. And prophetically speaking, the most important in the world. And it's still trampled by the Gentiles. It's still true. And you know, you can't have a Bible study up there. And I can tell you that maybe we did. <laughs> because our awesome Pastor Dwight doesn't need to get a Bible out to have a Bible study. I do. <laughs> and as we were maybe having this Bible study up there, um, there was people walking by that were up there all day long, so I think they were security. And the last time I was there was right before the election where there was Hillary versus Donald J. Trump. So he knows that the Arabs were very pro-Hillary because Donald Trump was very pro-Israel. So every time the security would walk by, Dwight would be in, maybe in the middle of his uh, Bible study in, in his heart, and, and we're all listening. And when the person would get within an earshot of each other, he'd start saying things about Hillary. And Hillary's going to do this and do that. And then all as soon as he got away, right back into the Bible study. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. Um, you know, be, be wise like a serpent, gentle like a dove, right? And so we got a, a, an awesome Bible study. And where we were on the Temple Mount is where Dwight figures the temple probably was. He's got a pretty good idea. He's done some studying on it. And I can't describe it. If I, if I was there, now I could take you to the place. But um, they have something small built there. It was maybe 8 by 8 some kind of a little something or other. But uh, it was pretty cool. And uh, nothing's going to stop God, right? So I'm, I applaud him for his courage and, and, and wisdom. And uh, nothing better than to pray on the Temple Mount, let me tell you.
Unfortunately, we had to cancel our trip there last November. I had a group of about 20 people, and Dwight had a group of about 20 people, and we were going to go and tour the Holy Land again. And um, I don't know if, if there's going to be plans for this year or not just yet, but hopefully sooner than later we can get there. And uh, if you've ever thought about going somewhere, that'll be life-changing and faith-enhancing to... Uh, it's, it's a multiplier like by a thousand would be to go there. Especially if you can go with Dwight, and he's been there so many times. He knows all the good places to eat, which I appreciate. Uh, we would get, go to different areas of Israel, and, and he would um, do a Bible study. And I was blessed to do two or three Bible studies. One of them was at uh, the, the site where um, David slew Goliath in the Valley of Elah. And we're in this beautiful state park, and there's an overview, and you can see the whole valley and where they would have been camped out and the whole thing. And then to give a Bible study there with that in the background. It's like I got goosebumps right now. That's how it is, except it's like every day there's two or three of them in different spots. Well, I'd like to talk about the coming of Jesus here now. Um, so these verses describe the convulsions of nature and the cataclysms on earth that'll come before Jesus' second coming. And there's going to be disturbances involving the sun and the moon and the stars that will be clearly visible on earth. And heavenly bodies will move out of their orbits. And, you know, this is probably going to cause different things, uh, tides and, and whatnot. And, and um, there's hope for the godly is where I'm going with that. And they're going to see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with a power and great glory. And now that these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. Verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea, and the, wa and the waves rolling. So think about that if the earth is off access, if you live in Appleton, we could have beachfront property, right? Or maybe not. Maybe it could be water. That would probably be my place. You know, I'd be the 30,000 leagues under the sea area. But that's all right. Um, and it goes on to see in verse 26, men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectations of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're going to have a whole lot more going on than worrying about waterfront property, right on? And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now when you see these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads, because your redemption draws near. So, so far, you know, we're at verse 28. Jesus is, is, is kind of letting us know that there's things that are going to happen. Jesus is letting us know not to fear if we're found in him, that he gives us the peace. But he also wants us to be all in. It says, lift your heads, because your redemption draws near. If you know that you're going to be redeemed, don't you want to be ready? And if you know that these things are going to be happening, don't you want to be ready? Well, there's another lesson Paul had read, uh, read these verses earlier today about the fig tree. And it's another sign indicating the nearness of Jesus' return. And the fig tree, I think, is a good example of the nation of Israel. Uh, it would begin to be evidence of new life. 
uh, in the last days. And I think that this is really significant because uh, so centuries after the dispersal of the nation of Israel and, and, and the obscurity of the nation of Israel, uh, it was reestablished in 1948, and it's now uh, recognized as a, f- a family of nations. And another proof of God's word and promise is Israel, the rebirth of it, a modern-day miracle of our generation. And that's important, knowing that it's a modern-day miracle of our generation. We're going to talk about that later, about the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel shall not perish, right? And, and Israel is, is an incredible miracle. Mark Twain had wrote about it. He went there at one time, and he said, he'd, you know, it was a miserable place. It was swamps and rocks everywhere, and still rocks everywhere. If you go to Israel, you're going to see so many rocks. It's like blades of grass here that you'll be happy if you never see a rock again when you get back after being there for 10 days. It's that many rocks. So let's go on in verse 29. And he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the, all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is here. So what is the sign of the fig tree and the budding? That summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Are we seeing things happening? Certainly are. Uh, things that were probably never even thought of before. Uh, feels like we're living in a sci-fi movie sometimes. In verse 33, or 32, he says, I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. So the generation that sees those signs will see the very end, and God will not prolong the great tribulation forever. Just what a generation is, we're not sure. Um, Some say 70 years. I don't know. Um, But I do know that since the birth of Israel, the clock has really started, hasn't it? And we're seeing these things happening in our world. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking up. I'm waiting. And I'm watching. In verse 33, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And if you digest that for just a moment, heaven and earth will pass away, something that as humans, we've always known to be there, right? It's always, earth has always been here, according to us and, and, our, and our mind. You talk to the right people, they're going to tell you it's billions of years old, right? Well, that's a long time. Uh, I don't agree with that statement, uh, that it's billions of years old. But as far as humanity goes, earth has always been here. And Jesus says that they will pass away, but his words will by no means pass away. What are we looking at today? We're looking at Jesus' words, aren't we? And no mere man could truthfully say that. Jesus claims that his words are the very words of God, and, and they are. So now he uses this little warning in 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, that the day come on you unexpectedly. You know, and it's easy to, to get weighed down with the cares of this life, isn't it? You know, we got bills to pay, we got job to get to, you know, and your car breaks down and you can't get there, and you know, 
it, all the different little things that are, are irritations to us. And, uh, but it says don't, don't get weighed down by that. Verse 35, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth, of, of the face of the whole earth. So in the meantime, Jesus' disciples and, and us today should guard against becoming occupied with eating and drinking and daily cares because his coming might, I shouldn't say might happen, but his coming will, will be coming unexpectedly at a moment we don't expect. And... That's what's going to happen to all those who think of this earth as their permanent dwelling place. You know, when I was a kid and I didn't know the Lord, I thought that the world was, this is my home. And as I get to know the Lord more and more, the more I feel like this is not even close to being my home. This is just a place that I'm passing through. And, you know, usually when we go away from home, if it's not a business trip or whatever, it's a vacation and it's nice to be not at home. But this not being our home isn't a vacation, is it? It can be sometimes, but not always. But just remember this, you know, when we're on the mountaintop, enjoy that moment, praise the Lord for it. But when we're not on the mountaintop, we're on the very bottom in the trench and we're looking up. Remember that nothing grows on the mountaintop. Everything grows in the in the valleys and in the trenches. Right on? So, you know, being in the trenches isn't the worst place because we're growing. Then we get back up in that mountaintop and soak it in and enjoy it the most you can. And then sometimes some of us get nervous when we're on the mountaintop because we know which way we're going next, right? (laughs) It's not going to be good. Hang on. We're going down. Verse 36 says, Watch therefore. We should be watching and pray always that you'll be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So a true disciple should watch all the time and should be praying at all times. And that would mean separating ourselves from the ungodly, uh, from the world which is doomed to experience the wrath of God, and identifying ourselves with those who will stand in acceptance before Jesus himself. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't go out amongst the ungodly to let them know about Jesus, right? That's really where we need to be. But don't, don't yoke ourselves with them and, and engage with the things that the world is doing. One of my primary audiences is bikers. And if we go to a motorcycle event and um, there's certain things going on that aren't of the Lord, we don't participate in those things. But we're still there. And um, many times people come up and, and ask one of the guys, um, you know, wh- how, how do you guys not do that? Or, or, you know, why are you different? And then we get to talk to them about Jesus. and uh, Or maybe they have a problem and something's just gnawing on them. And they'll come and talk to us. And, and God gives us favor with those folks and and just think about what if what if we did participate you know um name the sin you know that stuff goes on at motorcycle events i'm not going to get into and and if we would participate in that bikers can smell a phony from a mile away and guess what we would be we would be phonies 
how can guys respect us after that? But, you know, when we see the jello shots come out and the girls in the bikinis and stuff, we know that maybe it's time to move to another area or maybe go check our tents, make sure everything's okay over there, you know? And um, we can still be in the world without being part of it. Verse 37, and in the daytime he was watching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. So Jesus was getting out of town. Where the temple is and where the Mount of Olives is, is maybe, I, I can't even describe how far it would be, maybe a couple of blocks. It's not real far. You could walk it real easy. And then in the, so he was getting out of town though. And I think that, could you imagine being on the Mount of Olives? I mean, it's a beautiful area. You can see the whole city of Jerusalem from up there. You know how you can see the stars when you go out at night? And in Jerusalem, you can see the stars really good, by the way. And he probably just laid there and looked around at what he made and, and uh, probably regenerated himself a little bit and talked to the Father. What a great place to do it from, instead of the hustle and the bustle of the city. And then in early morning, all the people would come to him in the temple to hear him again. And I'm thinking about this, that he's sleeping on the Mount of Olives and, and he's homeless in the world that he made. That's what I'm thinking about as I'm reading this. And then in the morning, it's, it's, it's all business again. Back to the temple and people are listening to him. So in closing, Jesus looks at us when we give. And he notices just how much we give, but he's far more interested in what that amount says about our hearts than anything else. Uh, are we are we giving of our time? Are we giving of our attention? You know, money doesn't really mean anything to God because everything is his already. It's not like he's going to hope that he gets that extra hundred bucks so we can go and, you know, get that new Nike sweatshirt he wants or something, right? I mean, that's that's a non-issue for God. But this is a cool thing for every one of us. Because everybody is on a different level, right? As far as being able to uh, give of time, give of money, resources, whatever it might be. The poor man can serve and please God just as much as the rich man. And it doesn't matter if you're poor in influence, poor in gifts, poor in money. If If you sacrifice and give to God what you have, he sees it and he's pleased. Just like the kids with the widow's mite, right? And their piggy bank. You know, it could have been 33 cents. It could have been 33 bucks. We don't know. They, wanted, they were all in. They wanted to give all of it. God sees the heart. And Jesus had just criticized the scribes in, in the end of uh, Luke 20 who devour the widow's houses. And now this lone widow makes a spectacular contribution and uh, I'm wondering, because Jesus had brought up the, the scribes devouring the widow's houses, had her house been devoured by a scribe? And now she's being redeemed today because we're reading about her in her heart. Can you imagine that, losing all that you had, if that's the case? And you got two mites left, and you go and you put them, you put them into God's work, 
Now you got absolutely nothing where maybe before she had lots of things. So it shows the heart and God's looking for that. Remember that God doesn't need our money. It's, it's our privilege to give to him. You know, it's, it's my privilege to be standing here today delivering God's word to all of you. It's funny because I had a, a fellow come up to me one day and he knows I like to ride motorcycles and he knows that I'm a preacher, right? Must be nice to uh, just have to preach on Sundays. You must ride your motorcycle all week long. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that would be nice, you know? Where can I get a gig like that? I would preach twice on Sundays. Actually, today I am. Tonight I got a biker church service at 6.30. But... What a, what a great gig that would be, you know? No, I, I drive an hour to work every day, and then I put it on a full day, and I drive an hour home, and then sometimes I work out in my bike shop afterwards. And, um, and God provides for me, thank God. But yeah, it's, um, it, it doesn't happen like that. And, and so, you know, God doesn't need our money, and it's, it's, it's my privilege to be here today. It really is. And... Uh, Giving is, is, is necessary, and it's necessary for our sake. And you probably have heard the, 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 the saying, you can't outgive God. And I've talked to so many people. I, I've been giving more of my time to the Lord, and I can't believe how blessed I am. Um, I just started tithing, and I can't believe how blessed I am. I always have money yet where I thought I never would. And, and God just does really cool stuff. And I'm not saying that if you put money in the box that you're going to get more back. But it's, it seems to work that way sometimes. And, and you can't outgive God. And giving more time to study, you'll just be blessed by it. So it's really our privilege, and, and giving is necessary for our sake. It's not for God. And a gift's value is determined by the spirit in which it is given. God doesn't want to uh, receive grudgingly given money. Um, or guilt money, God loves a cheer, cheerful giver. And I remember growing up in a denomination where, you know, we were probably not even middle class, we were, we we're lower middle class. Dad had a business and he was working hard to develop it. And remember, he wouldn't come home a lot of times at night. Um, he'd work late, try to get things off the ground. And then he would go to church and they would have like, the, the largest contributing families' names up on this little thing on the side. And, and then, like, if you didn't give enough, they would send you these little nasty grams in the mail, you know. And, uh, God, and so you're, you're compelled to give, and, and you're compelled by notoriety. And, and so you, if your name's on the, on the board, you just got your, your reward from man. Yeah. Right on? And so, and that was a big turnoff for me. Uh, growing up in the denomination, um, it's like, wow, that seems like all they really care about is, you know, getting the new roof or the addition or, or whatever it might be. Um, God always, God always seems to provide, and uh, and He loves a cheerful giver. And and the value of a gift is determined by what it costs the giver. What do the two mites cost this widow? Everything. She was all in, and, and she's going to give it to the Lord. 
Um, I wish that the scriptures would talk about what happened with that lady. Wouldn't that be cool? You know, um, that she was, you know, probably blessed beyond imagination. Maybe everything she had was restored to her plus, you know, a percentage. And that's what made the, the widow's gift so valuable. Now, David, we're all familiar with him, refused to give God that which cost him nothing. If you go to, we don't have to go there, but if you're a note taker, 2 Samuel 24, 24, that David had something that didn't cost him anything. He wasn't going to give that to the Lord because it didn't, it didn't cost him anything. And as for the spirit in which the gift is given and, and what it costs the giver, think about the precious gift of salvation. Now there's something that, that was a costly gift. There's something that, in the spirit of love for mankind, this precious gift of salvation, it's offered to each of us through Jesus Christ. And now that is, there's the spirit of giving at the greatest cost. And it, it pains me to see so many folks that don't recognize the cost involved, the spirit involved in that gift of salvation. And that so many folks uh, don't, don't want to take it. It seems too easy, right? But it's not. I mean, it has to be simple so we can understand that we're simple people. And we must take heed because there are certain things that will make a person unprepared. You know, the carousing, the drunkenness, the cares of this life. And each of these things can make us unprepared for Jesus' return. So we must watch. Anyone who watches will never be caught in a snare. And our failure to watch keeps us from being ready. We need to pray always. That's probably one of the neatest examples that that Jesus gave us that anybody can do. And it's it's funny sometimes, somebody will come up and say, Tommy, I want to pray, but I just don't know how. And I said, well, the first thing you need to do is you you need to take your socks off. You need to sit down, put your feet up in the air, you know, start making these funny rules. Because then they're really happy when you tell them, no, all you have to do is talk to God like he's your friend. And then they're, oh, you mean I don't have to do all that other stuff? No, you don't have to do all that other stuff. Come on, man. You know, as Jesus asks us to pray all continually through the day, can we do that? Yeah. We don't have to do anything fancy or special. Just talk to him. And um, then sometimes they'll say, well, what does he say back? You know, it's like they're thinking I'm hearing this loud, booming voice, you know. And uh, I say, well, the Lord talks to me when I'm in his word. And when I'm in his word, I'll, I'll read something and it'll be exactly what I needed to hear. Or the Lord will speak to me through other Christians, other believers, where I'm waiting for an answer or confirmation. And somebody will come up and say something exactly what I had on my mind and give me a confirmation. And that's how the Lord talks to me, is mainly through his word. That blows people's minds, by the way. <laughs> but praise God, he does. And, you know, if you haven't heard from the Lord in a while, just start reading the Bible a little bit more. It doesn't even matter where. Because, you know what, that page that you open up to will probably be the one that God wants you to hear for the day. And sometimes you get something where it'll blow your mind, and sometimes you're just like, oh, that was good. Okay. And, and keep moving on. So pray always. Um, we need to be worthy to escape all these things that are going to come to pass. And the good news 
in Jesus is that we don't have to go through the calamity that's coming, that he will, he'll take as many of us as are ready before the calamity begins. And regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, those who listened to Jesus and obeyed Jesus escaped the horrible destruction that came upon the city. So regarding the far greater destruction that's coming upon the whole earth, those who listen to and those who obey Jesus can escape the destruction that will come. This and the other New Testament texts show a general pattern of events, but since Jesus will return like a thief in the night, the best we can do is keep watching, waiting, and be prepared. Be prepared for his return. You're all preparing for that right now, whether you know it or not, because you're here and you're listening to God's word. I'm giving you a well done. Well done. So Jesus has told the church to be ready. So every generation should keep watch. And in the meantime, the church is called to serve him faithfully. The church is called to share the gospel, which is the good news. And the church is called to grow in grace. And if I can get an amen on that, we can pray. All right. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and stand and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we we can't thank you enough for uh, sharing with us uh, the right way to live, uh, what's coming down the road, and to be aware of of watching and and the things of this world that are, are to come. And Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you show us uh, these things ahead of time so that we know that your word is real and that you love us enough to, to, to give us a, an insight and instructions to be watching and waiting. Lord, as we start a new work week, I pray that each of us would have our minds uh, on things of you and that you would uh, bless us and, and watch over us as we get into the work week and that we would be able to continue to serve you and be faithful in it and to to share the gospel no matter where we are and to to grow in grace and show others grace. And uh, we thank you for who you are and all that you are. And uh, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.